Uh, like he said, I am chaplain of Walnut Grove Correctional Facility. Um, if there's one thing in life that I've learned, it's when you're in that moment of dryness, you know, when your faith is still there, when you're still comfortable in the Lord, but you're just kind of dry, that's when you need to press in the most. And that's what brought me here that night. It was, it was random on his part, but it wasn't so random on my part. I'd heard about it on Facebook. I knew y'all were having a kind of a revival thing. And I was like, man, what an opportunity to just go and worship and pray. So that was my plan. I came and I sat in the back and I sat back there for like an hour and a half just praying, saying, God, I don't, I don't know what you got going on here, but I need, I need you here. I need you all in here. And I was getting ready to leave and uh, saw Matt Ayers. Of course, I got to shake his hand, you know. And that's when they asked me to come up here and I did share my testimony. And man, what a night of worship it was up here. And that's kind of why I'm here today. He called me a couple weeks later and was like, hey man, I want to hear you speak. So let's, let's do this. Let's uh, go to the Lord in some prayer first though. Gracious God, Father, we thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for this amazing bunch of people here, Lord. We know that you've numbered every hair on every head in here, Lord. So they are chosen to be here. Lord, I ask that you get me out of the way, Lord, that I decrease so that you may increase. Lord, we love you, we praise you, but most of all, we trust you. It's in your precious name. Turn with me to Exodus 23 through 25, if you can. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. And God remembered their covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Now, if there's anything in life that can be sure, it is that God knows. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around you. It doesn't matter what struggles or what mountaintop you're on. God knows. And I love this story of Exodus. You see, the story of Exodus is kind of like our own story. And it's always a struggle to go from sin to salvation, from pain to healing, from despair to resting on God's promises. There's always a struggle there. But the good news is the gospel is, is that God is always with you. Like I said, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the lowest valley or the highest mountaintop. God is always with you. See, Israel was in slavery for 430 years. It was generational. That's all they knew. All they knew was slavery. And before they could come out of that, some things needed to happen. I'm here to tell you today, if, if you're ready for revival, if you're ready for your own exodus, some things need to happen. Chances are, it's probably not going to be on your own time either. It's going to be on God's time. And before they could be let out on their own exodus, things needed to happen. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, if there was ever an equation for life, I think that would be it. It, it never fails if you submit yourself to God. Then you resist the devil. Then you draw near to God and he draws near to you. That's the equation that works, or at least it works for me. Today, I want to share you the story of my own exodus, my journey from Egypt. Growing up, I constantly thought about escape. As far back as I can remember, like five or seven years old, 
I would ride in my mom's car with her and I would look at water towers and tall buildings and bridges and I would try to devise a way to get back to these places so I could jump off of them. I didn't know I was talking about suicide at the time. I didn't know that there was a word for it. I just called it suicide. I mean, I just called it escape. See, I grew up in a house with an alcoholic father. My dad battled his own demons and a lot of times it was taken out on me. I was constantly reminded about how stupid I was and about just how much I messed everything up. I started thinking I was a complete failure. I couldn't do anything right and I just wanted to escape. I wanted to escape this world. I wanted to escape this life. I started hanging out with the wrong people. Started doing the wrong things. By the time of 15, I was smoking meth. And from the very first time that I tried it, I knew that that was going to be with me for the rest of my life. So because while I was high, I didn't have to feel anymore. While I was high, I felt confident. While I was high, I had friends around as long as I had the high to supply them. But of course, my, man, my mind was clouded by that. You see, we're all built with this hole in our heart. And we try to plug that hole with whatever, whatever we can, whether it be money, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a job, whatever it is, we try to plug that hole. But the only thing is, it's a God-sized hole. The only thing that can fill it is the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. But I didn't know Jesus then. Um, as time went on, I met this girl my junior year in high school. She was this innocent girl, didn't know anything about drugs. And she came right into a life full of it. We dated all through high school. And as soon as we got graduated, we, we married. Um, neither one of us knew the Lord. And the thing is, if you don't ever put God at the top of anything, whatever that thing is, is gonna fail. So our marriage didn't last long and she left me. Um, she left me for another woman. And that destroyed everything inside of me. Any kind of confidence that I did have was shattered at that moment. My whole manhood was on trial because, man, how could a man let his wife leave? Everything was messed up in my mind, and I went back to the thing that I knew the most, and that was partying. Again, while I was high, I didn't have to feel. Within all this partying and, and drugging and everything else, man, I found this really good job started working offshore, so now I had the money to supply this drug habit. And I fit the bill, man. I had all this money coming in, and I had the nice cars, and I had the nice clothes, and I had all this stuff, and I made some promises to myself. I said, I will never throw away my job for dope. I will never throw away my family for dope, and I will never, ever, ever use a needle because I'm not going to be a junkie. Before it was all said and done with, I'd break all three of those promises to myself. So within these promises, I had this set of rules, right? So I would not use for two or three days before I left to the rig. That way I could pass a drug test and I would stay clean the whole 14 days I was on the rig. We called it blue water rehab. Everybody dried out while they were out there. You came home and got high. And that kept up appearances. That went on for a lot of years until I met this girl. And when I met this girl, man, she had everything going for her. She had a really nice job with the military. She'd been in for 18 years. She had a house of her own, and she had no idea what drugs looked like. Made it super easy to hide it from her. Um, 
After a while of dating, we got engaged. Then she got pregnant. A couple months after she got pregnant, I went to the rig and they drug tested me as soon as I got there, of course, and I failed it. See, the drugs had started making decisions for me. It wasn't me making decisions for myself. And that's when I broke that first promise that I would never lose my job for dope. So I came home from the rig and I had to make up this lie because of course I couldn't tell her that I just lost my job because I failed a drug test because then she would leave me. So I made up a lie and of course that put a really bad strain on a relationship because not only was I hiding my drug use, but now I'm hiding lies from her. Anytime you hide something from someone you're close to, it causes strain, no matter how good you think you're hiding it, even from God, it causes strain on that relationship. Um, but while she was pregnant, man, it was all right. We were doing good things, quote unquote. And it came time for her to give birth to my son. And she did, man, and it was this beautiful little baby boy. And he was perfect. The first time I held him, it made me rethink everything I had ever done in my life. I said, man, if this is love, what in the world have I been doing? See, the thing about love is the Bible says that God is love. If you don't know God, therefore you don't know love. But this boy that I was holding in my hands was the first glimpse of it I'd ever seen. Like I said, man, I started rethinking everything but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to make me realize that I needed to change. It wasn't enough to make me realize that I had a problem. And when I lost that job, man, and I came home and I had, she was still expecting at the time. And I was like, man, what kind of, kind of guy am I? I just threw away everything for this. I got to stop. I got to stop. I got to stop using dope. This is it. I'm going to find me another job and I'm going to be that dad. I'm going to be a great dad. I'm not going to be the dad that I grew up with. So within two weeks of that, I found me another job, making more money, doing the same thing. Went to work and got home and got that very first paycheck and I went out to the dope house to celebrate. Again, the dope was running my life. Um, After a year, after Case was a year old, Brandy had had enough. She couldn't take it anymore. I was an absent father. I was an absent husband. I just wasn't there. And I most definitely was not a pleasure to be around. As you can imagine, using copious amounts of drugs kind of ruins your demeanor. So one year into it, one year into our new year, my son being born, Brandy said, it's time for us to split. So we split and I started partying even harder. I went back to what I knew. A couple weeks after that, I went to the rig and I was about 14, or about seven days into my 14-day hitch, about midway through, and I got off tower for the day, and I went downstairs to work out. But I was feeling really sluggish. Like, I just couldn't get motivated. I thought, man, maybe I'm sick or something. Maybe I can just go into the shower and wash this off. So I went upstairs and turned on the shower, and when I went to step in, it felt like somebody reached inside of me and grabbed a zipper and unzipped it. It didn't hurt. It just it felt like a zipper. And I started feeling really confused. I didn't know what was going on and my legs started hurting. That's when I collapsed. 
And I knew that if I didn't get out in the hallway, nobody would find me for 12 hours. So I crawled to my door and I opened it up, but I passed out with my arm hanging out in the hallway. They found me, they put me on a helicopter and they rushed me over to Lady of the Sea in Houma, Louisiana. They started treating me for dehydration. They thought my legs were cramping. They thought that's why it was hurting. But when I started not getting any better, my mom drove down from Brandon down to Houma and she was sitting beside my bed and I said, Mama, I said, I don't think I'm gonna make it. But when I said it, my lungs had filled up with blood and it was just blood that came out of my mouth. The nurses immediately started freaking out. They run a bunch of tests and they put me on a helicopter and sent me back to Oshner's in New Orleans. They discovered I had an ascending and descending aortic dissection. My aorta had split open into two layers. My mitral valve and my aortic valve had both prolapsed. My heart was pumping blood, but no blood was returning back to my body. It was just filling up with blood. They did a 27-hour emergency surgery, 22, 27-hour emergency surgery. Put a graft around the lower half of my aorta, repaired my valves. They told me that my body couldn't handle it enough to put a graft around the top half, so they're gonna send me home with that. I stayed in the hospital for a while, learning how to walk again, pushing around an oxygen tank. And then I got sent home because I couldn't take care of myself. I had to move in with my mom and dad. Nahum 3.12 says, all your fortresses of this world are like ripened fig trees. When shaken, they fall off into the mouth of the eater. See, I had all these strongholds of this world. I had the money, I had the cars, I had the clothes, I had the brick house. I had all these things. But I had this pit of darkness inside of me. I had this emptiness inside of me. And it was craving God. I just didn't know it was God that I was craving. After a little while of being at my parents' house, you see, this was with that same dad that used to slap me to the ground, that used to call me stupid, that used to call me an idiot and tell me how much I messed up. It didn't last long. I was depressed. And he was constantly reminding me that I was 30 years old and now he was taking care of me again. So I moved out and I got my own apartment. I couldn't, couldn't stand up very long. I could only make it a few steps without being out of breath. My mom would make meals and bring them over. And it started getting to where I couldn't see my son. because I couldn't hold him. I couldn't take care of him. I couldn't even take care of myself. The Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's exactly what he does. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy the image of God. So he put a way to get free drugs back in my life. You see, I couldn't work, couldn't make no money, but all of a sudden I had access to all the free dope I could use. And I already had heart trouble, so I figured the fastest way out of here, the fastest way to escape was to start using a needle. That was that third promise. Now I'd lost my job, I'd lost my family, and now I'm on the needle. All three promises broke. You see, that's what drugs do, man. They promise you the world and strip the world from you. I started shooting up three, four, five, sometimes six times a day. I was trying to blow up my heart. One day I passed out. My neighbor found me and they rushed me up to St. Dominic's. 
they did some tests and they realized that I had an aneurysm that had formed in the top half of the aorta. So they put me on a helicopter and they flew me down to New Orleans and they did another surgery and they put another graft around my heart and they sent me back home. But at this point, I'm even more depressed because now I can't even kill myself right. And all I wanted to do was escape. I just, I just wanted to die. And the enemy had gotten in my head and told me that your son is better off without you. You'll never throw a ball with him. You'll never be able to buy him school clothes. You'll never be able to do any of this. You're better off dead. He's better off with you dead. So I got home and I started shooting up and then I would down a whole bottle of blood pressure medicine and I would start seizing and I would pass out and I would wake up wherever I was and be mad. Man, why can't I just die? I had a gun, but I could never make myself pull the trigger. I would fall asleep with the gun on my temple and my finger on the trigger, just hoping that in my sleep I would pull it. But I would wake up in the same exact position the next morning. Almost like there was a hand over me, protecting me. Ever feel that way in your own life? One day I woke up and I didn't have any more needles left. I didn't have a ride, but there was this road that I used to throw out all my needles on out in the middle of the country. And I said, well, maybe I can go walk that road and maybe I can find me a needle. So I did, and I found one, and I brought it home, and I put it in boiling water because, you know, that's how you kill all bacteria is put it in boiling water. And I went back to doing what I was doing. I caught a blood infection. This infection bonded at a synthetic material that was around my heart. It was a medically resistant staph infection. And they couldn't get rid of it, and they told me they had to take the mesh out to get rid of it, but they couldn't take the mesh out because my body couldn't take it. So they put this IV in my arm and it went straight to my heart and I had to wear this bag around my shoulders and it was pumping antibiotics 24-7 to my heart. But for an addict, now I didn't have to find a vein anymore. Now I could just tie into the tube. Within doing this, I had a, that second aneurysm, but this time it was different. When I got to St. Dominic's, as the doctor was fixing to load me on the helicopter, he said, son, he said, look, I don't know who you got to get right with, but you better get right with them now because this aneurysm is fixing to rupture and you're fixing to die. And they rushed me down. They flew me down to Oshner's and as the helicopter was landing at Oshner's, the aneurysm ruptured. I'd love to give you a statistic on people that make it out of ruptured aneurysms, but I don't know it. And let me tell you, it's very slim to none. They rushed me into the hospital. They did another surgery. They put another graft around me. And they sent me back home. Why couldn't I just die? Why couldn't I just escape? Exodus 14, 7 says, and he took 600 of his chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the officers overall. See, the Israelites had gotten to this impassable sea just waters in front of them that they could not pass. And now they look back and these 600 of the best chariots were chasing them down. You ever felt like that? You ever been caught between a rock and a hard place? Maybe it's that relationship that you've been praying for. Maybe it's that job you've been praying for. Maybe it's that loved one that is still so lost that you can't even reach them. You ever feel like that? 
Maybe your story's not my own, but you've been in the same neighborhood, not on the same street, but in the same neighborhood. But let me tell you something, God knows. I had this mom, she was a praying mom. There's indentions beside her bed for my mom, wearing down the walls of heaven, praying for her son. And she would always invite me to church. You know, she was never pushy about it. Every single weekend without fail, son, you want to go to church with me? Sometimes I would make up excuses. Sometimes I would get really ugly with her because I didn't believe in God. And if I did believe in him, he was cruel. How could he ever let this kid that I used to be get treated the way he treated? And why isn't he saving me out of this thing now? But you see, God was with me that whole time. He was just waiting for me to see him. He was waiting for me to submit myself to him. So the doctors called my parents in and they said, look, his organs are shutting down. He's got six to eight months tops. You need to start making end of life preparations. So this praying mom did the only thing she knew to do. She went to her pastor. This church that she went to had been praying to, for me for years. I had no idea who any of these people were. I'd never met them. But she calls her pastor and one day out of the blue, he calls me. And when he called me, I was high as a kite. And he says, Jeremy, can I come talk to you? I was like, yeah, buddy, you can come talk to me. See, I had this image of what pastors were supposed to be. And he was coming to, to get to know me so he'd have something to say at my funeral. And I already had it planned out in my mind what he was gonna tell me. You know, Jeremy, you need to repent. You've done so much evil in your life. You need to repent because you're going to this fiery dark place for eternity. But when he came in, he didn't say any of that. When he came in, he sat down on my couch and he started telling me this story about how he had been arrested several times for prescription fraud and how he had been to prison. And I'm like, what kind of pastor is this? <laughs> Never heard of a pastor that's been to prison. And he said, Jeremy, he said, won't you do this one thing for me? Won't you just come to my church? You ain't got to talk to nobody just come and sit on the back row. And I did. A few weeks later, I didn't tell nobody. I didn't short, certainly didn't tell my mama. I, when I got there, I'd been up for several days. And if you've ever been an addict, you know where I'm at on this. I was starting to see people that wasn't there. I was starting to talk to people that wasn't there. I was hearing things that wasn't there. This drug-induced psychosis. But that's where I was. And I came in and I sat down on the back row of this church and in the middle of his sermon, he says, who are you that's been sitting in the front row of church your entire life to judge the one coming through the door, smelling like last night, but knowing it's gonna take a miracle to change their life? Who are you to judge them? I said, man, if this is preaching, I can listen to this. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is all right. So I started going to church and it really wasn't to hear the message. I still... Like I said, I still didn't believe in this God guy. And if I did, he was just a cruel kid with a magnifying glass over an ant bed. But I went because I wanted to see my mom smile before I die. See, when I was out there, I don't want all this story to make me sound good. I was a wicked, wicked person. I had no emotions. I was violent. I was hateful. And I put my parents through too much. And I wanted to see that sweet woman 
smile before I died. So I went to church with her and mom got me this Bible and I started cherry picking these verses out. I would Google verses that made me feel good. And I'd go in there and highlight them and never read it again. And one day within doing that, I ran across this verse. See, the thing is, I was so mad at this God guy that I wanted to prove he wasn't real. And keep in mind, I'm a serial cherry picker. So I got to this verse where Christ is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I was like, man, what is this? People have turned their back on me my entire life. Why would I ever give my life to a God that turned his back on his own kid? Why would I ever do that? But the thing, the thing about picking apart the Bible is, God will reveal it to you. You can cherry pick all you want to, but sooner or later, God's going to reveal it to you. And when he did, it was like a ton of bricks landed on me. This man, this perfect man that came, this Godhead came and walked sinless all the days of his life. But in that one moment on the cross, he took everyone's sin, past, present, and future in that one single moment. Now that's something I can listen to. That's a man I can give my heart to. He didn't know me. Why would he ever give his life for me? But he did know me. Before I was even formed, he knew me. So within going to church with my mom and cherry picking these verses out and wrestling with God about if he was real or not, one night I was sitting on the edge of my bed and I hadn't died yet and I was ready to. It was time. So I loaded up two needles, one for each arm. I said, tonight's tonight. Tonight's the night I die. And I sat on the edge of my bed and I cried out to God. I said, God, if you're real, I need to know. Just show me you're real, God. Please just show me that you're real. And nothing happened. Nothing. The walls didn't shake. There was no shiny light coming down. There was no big booming voice. Nothing happened. And I said, man, this is a joke. This whole God thing's a joke. These people are fooled. They're leading my mama into some kind of cult. It's all a joke. And I kicked that Bible. And when I did, it opened up to the only highlighted verse on the page. And it was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And there it was. There's that word, escape. I'd love to be able to tell you what I felt in that moment. I'd love to be able to sit up here and tell you the assurance that I had in that moment, but I cannot describe it. I just need you to know that those words on that page came alive and they jumped inside of my soul. And I pulled the needles out of my arm and I flushed them in the toilet and I did what no addict has ever done and I flushed an ounce of dope. And then I started doing what no Christian in here, I'm sure, has ever done and I started making those, you know, ultimatums with God. God, you better, you better do this right. You better not mess this up, God. I'm going to give you a shot, but just know 
that if you mess this up, I'm out of here. Thing is, I submitted myself to God in that moment. In that moment, I didn't realize the magnitude of what I had just done, but I had recognized that he is the one and only God. I had recognized that he was my savior and I had recognized that I needed him. And this funny thing happened. You see, I gave God a shot and I fell in love with him. And that five to six months or six to eight months that the doctors had told me I had to live has now turned into going on six years. December 17th of 2017, that was at night on the bathroom floor. That was the night I surrendered to God. That was also the last time I did dope. So I started serving God as best I know how. You see, in the story of Jericho, the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. So that's what I did, man. I surrounded my life with the presence of God. I stopped answering my phone. I stopped answering the door. I would go to church with mama and I would come home and read the Bible and that was it. I would fall asleep and I would wake up and read and fall asleep and wake up and read and I was super confused so I was blowing up my pastor's phone constantly. <laughs> but he always answered. And he may not know the exact answer to the question I had, but he would tell me, Jeremy, when you're reading scripture, you gotta be okay with the mystery button. That wasn't enough for me. I'm like, God, you, you got to do something with all of this. But God has a way of even revealing the mystery button to you and being okay to push it sometimes because we don't have all the answers. But we serve this magnificent God that we can only make a feeble attempt to describe and we use the word holy. We try to put so much into that word, but still that's even not enough to describe what this God is. Started serving the church. I was on staff at the church. I was on staff with this ministry. But when the walls of Jericho fell, or before they fell, God told them, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the things and make camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. You see, when the walls of your Jericho fall, when you make it out of Egypt, you devote everything of value to God. But anything that was supposed to be in destruction, you leave in destruction. But I hadn't quite done that yet. I still had some things that I was holding on to. Some things that I was trying to hide from people. See, I was serving the Lord and I knew that he was real and I knew that I loved him with every fiber of my being. But I still had some darkness in here and I still had some things I didn't want to share with people. But the thing about lies is what's done in the dark will come to the light. And one day it did. I'd been praying. I said, every time I would do these things. I'm like, God, just take it from me. God, just take it from me. Oh, Lord, don't even, don't even let me go there. Just let me, let me stop. And then it got to the real prayers, those dangerous prayers. God, I don't care what you got to do, strip me. God, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what I lose. As long as I got you, that's all I need. 
two days later, that's when it happened. Everything came out to light. My pastor called me in his office and he says, Jeremy, we've got to get you out of leadership. And it was completely understandable because I was in no place for leadership. Hebrews 12, 7 says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our God that we may share his holiness. You see, when that pastor told me that I had to step out of leadership, I walked out of his office. I still trusted in God. I still loved God. But inside, I was hurting. And I sat down in my car in the parking lot. Just like the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, they started remembering those meat pots. And at least while we were in Egypt, at least while we were in slavery, we had pots of meat to eat. So here I am sitting in my car. And the first thing that came to mind was, man, you better stick a needle back in your arm. This is all over with. But Hebrews tells us that what is shaken will be shaken so that what is unshakable will remain. See, this was different this time. I didn't have all these fortresses of this world. I had a faith in God, a faith in the God. So when my life was shaken, the unshakable things were there. You see, I had brothers in Christ. I had a foundation. I had people I could call. So I called a buddy of mine. I said, man, look, this is what's going on and I'm struggling. And he said, well, Jeremy, you know what to do. You know the answer. Turn to God. Submit yourself to correction. There's that word again, submit. What does it look like to submit to correction? That means to realize that we're not right. So I started making all the tough phone calls, all the tough in-person meetings and saying, hey man, look, I messed up. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I lost a lot of friends, and it was a tough season. Man, it was so tough because I'd broken so many people's trust, so many people's hearts. But after a season of submitting to God, God started to entrust me with this ministry. He put me as chaplain of Walnut Grove Correctional Facility where there's a bunch of broken guys that have a lot of the same background as I do. Most of them weren't loved as kids. Most of them were never discipled as kids. And now I get to share my story with them. Now I get to lead them through the wilderness out of their own Egypt. But that's not just it. Joel 2.25 says, I will restore the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Not only has God put me back in ministry, back doing the only thing I know how to do and that serve him. But now that same dad that used to beat me as a child 
won't let me leave the house without hugging me and telling me how much he loves me. And he is the best grandfather that you could ever ask for. My son loves him to death. And now he's going to church. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what sea is in front of you. It doesn't matter how many horses are behind you, chasing you down and nipping at your heels. God will make a way where there is no way. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Thank you.